Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast where we discuss cutting-edge science, the wisdom of the ages, lessons from pop culture, and our own experiences about how to be happier. This week, happily, is our discussion for the Happier Podcast Book Club. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. Elizabeth, I remember you and I were together when you bought Wild Game. We were on tour for our our live shows, and you just snatched it off the shelf. Yes, that's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And yeah, Gretchen, I read Wild Game when I was supposed to be writing because (laughs) it was so good. I had to finish it before I turned to my computer. Yeah, dangerous. Uh, Now, before we start our discussion, we wanted to remind everybody in episode 260, our next episode, it's a very special episode, and it will be all about relationship advice. So please send us the best advice you ever got, the worst advice you ever got, and it can be about any relationship, romantic relationship, work relationship, family relationship, whatever you want. Yes. Can't wait to talk about that. Yes. And now the book club. Now, last year we launched our Happier Podcast book club, and we are so excited to be talking about our next choice, the brilliant memoir, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. The author, Adrienne Brodeur, worked in publishing for a long time. Among other things, she founded the fiction magazine Zoetrope All Story with filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola and served as editor-in-chief for many years. She was a book editor for works of literary fiction and memoir. She became creative director and later executive director of Aspen Words, a literary arts nonprofit and program of the Aspen Institute. Her memoir, Wild Game, has generated a huge amount of buzz. It has been a big bestseller and was named a Best Book of 2019 by NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, Library Journal, and many others. Wild Game is a brilliant, timeless memoir about how the people close to us can break our hearts simply because they have access to them and the lies we tell in order to justify the choices we make. It's a remarkable story of resilience, a reminder that we need not be the parents our parents were to us. We're so excited to have Adrian in the studio here in New York City. Hello, Adrian. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Liz. Yeah, it's so exciting for me. You're face to face with me here in New York City, so that's good. Um, it's always a, such a treat to see someone face to face. I agree. It makes a huge difference. Yes, it does. Not that not that it's any less yeah. talking to you, Liz. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I wish I were there. Yeah. I love this book. I'm so excited to talk about it. Adrian, before we get into our many questions and thoughts about the book, um, there's a key moment that sort of sets up the trajectory of the next, um, I guess, decades of your life. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So Wild Game is essentially about my very complicated relationship with my mother, Malabar, and it starts, the opening scene is, is starts with the night um, when my mother woke me out of a sound sleep to let me know that my stepfather, her husband's best friend, had just kissed her. 
And you were 14. I was 14 years old. Yes, I was 14 years old. We were in our family home on the Cape. These these friends, the Southers, couple friends had been there for the weekend. There'd been a nice boozy night <laughs> with lots of food and drink. And this episode happened. And then later in the evening, she came upstairs to wake me up and tell me about it. And what I what I don't think either of us knew in that moment was that it was going to go on to become this epic love affair in her life. But what I did know in real time as that happened was it was one of those moments with a before and an after mm. and that my life was never going to be the same, that I'd gone to bed as my mother's daughter and I'd woken up as her best friend and confidant and, you know, in this very kind of provocative grown-up world. Because she actually um, got you to help her have this affair. You were instrumental in the logistics. Yeah, I very quickly sort of became, you know, I, I allowed it to look very innocent because me being in on it, I was sort of like their teenage chaperone. Uh. And when they would go out to take walks after dinner, because both their spouses were in poor health. So, you know, there was that layer of it too. But I would often suggest we take a walk. My mother would call it a constitutional. And the three of us would go out after one of these dinners. And, you know, we they went on to do those wild game test at dinners. And we'd go out after dinner and I would peel off and they would have some time alone. Mm-hmm. So you were recruited to be the chaperone. That yeah. Would, yeah. I mean, recruited sounds like there was a lot of foresight and maybe there was. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the part I'll never know. Or maybe it just sort of developed in that way. Because also, I mean, it sounds so terrible now when I think back on it. I, You know, like every other person, my thought bubble is, good God, what was going on there? At the time, it was kind of thrilling for right. me. I suddenly mm-hmm. had a front seat row to a big drama. I was very important in my mother's life. Um, and, you know, I was in on this really grown-up secret. Special, intimate yeah. relationship it was, with her. It yeah. was very seductive for me. Um, the title. It is one of the all-time great titles. Brilliant. And it's so perfect because it came it came straight from um, some you know, something from your life. I'll let you talk about it. Um, But we want to know, did you always know that would be the title? And then the subtitle, um, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me, is is just so evocative. Did you know that would be the subtitle or, you know, did you struggle with it? Um, You know, uh, the answer, of course, is yes and no. I I had a horrible working title just as I was coming up with the whole thing. Tell me, I love love working titles. Um, Hang on, let me try to recall it. Um, it was something like uh, family, uh, infidelity, a family affair, or something along those lines. Oh, okay. I mean, it was really bad, but that wasn't ever what I thought the book yeah, was going to be. It was just sort of like, as I was writing, I, I kind of was milling around in that territory. And then, honestly, when I got to the chapter that was about um, when my mother, and I probably need to give the, the yeah. listeners some backstory, but my mother was an incredible cook. She'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu, and she'd you know, written cookbooks and a food column. You know, my childhood was just full of test recipes and dinners. And um, when she fell in love um, and began this affair, the man she fell in love with happened to be a, a recreational hunter and fisherman. And since they were all couple friends, they came up with this ruse for the affair and also to allow more opportunities for them to be together. And it was going to be a wild game cookbook. Um, so wild game just 
you know, when I landed on I mean, that moment, I was like, oh, yeah. duh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the title. And then, you know, the subtitle we noodled around in for a while. But I mean, it just, it was always sort of, I, for some reason, it was almost the the rhythm of it. I knew it had to have three yes. beats. And, mm. you know, that it just, the only concern was, did it imply anything I didn't mean for it to imply? Like mm. there was oh. somehow three of us were involved oh. in that affair, which I don't, you know, I was worried. You worry about yes. the most random sure. things when you come sure. up with something, but um, it's it's been a good title. I think it's one of the all-time greatest title subtitles and a beautiful cover too, which that picture of you as a child. I mean, yeah. guess what? What? That's not me. Oh, it's not you. It looks <laughs> so much like you. Can I tell you? So when I first saw this photograph, I thought, when was that picture of my daughter taken? <gasps> oh. And then my husband was there. and But then I realized, like, the hair's too dark for my daughter. And my husband was there, and he was like, oh, when was this picture of you taken? And mm. I was a towhead at that age. I was a white right. blonde. And then I realized that's my mother. <gasps> In 19, oh, my God. Oh. Wait, does it say that on the book? I don't know if it does say that on the book. I don't think it does. Oh, I just got chills. But, I mean, it's just all the part of the inheritance. And it the, says jacket photograph, courtesy of the author. I looked at that and figured that that had to mean that it was you. Mm-mm. That's your mother. That's my wow. mother. But you, yourself. Oh, my gosh. I you thought it was so my daughter. Makes the, that makes it even better. Well, so you thought it was your daughter. Your husband thought it was you. Yes. It's actually your mother. Okay. Exactly. And I think the thing that's so interesting about memoir jackets, for the most part, unless they do some symbol like the boot in, uh, you know, Cheryl Strange book or the pencil in Educated, I mean, it's either a photograph of your family or a stock photo of someone else's family, which just either Mm -hmm. felt a little strange. And what I loved about this was it's, you know, not readily identifiable. It's sort of an iconic picture and she's gazing out and she's age appropriate and all that, but it's not sort of some head-on photo of of any of us. So it felt comfortable too. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Um, And Adrian, everyone who reads this book, um, because as we were discussing, I have gotten a lot of people to read it. Um, Talk about what a page turner it is. I mean, I read it in one day. I think most people do. When you were writing it, what was your experience? Did it pour out of you easily? Or, I mean, it's obviously such a personal story. Was it difficult to write? Um, You know, the writing itself, I think because... I had been processing it for 40 years and thinking about, and 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 I had several failed attempts of doing it in different ways. I, you know, I wrote short stories and I, I wrote a bad romantic comedy. You know, I just, yeah. I was muscling, just sort of trying to figure out how to tell it. And I think I handled it with humor for a long time, mm. both in just kind of everyday conversation, simply because I think, you know, that's a way to deflect some pain. Yes. <laughs> and so then when I decided, when I kind of, finally figured out that I needed to tell it straightforwardly in memoir. Um, and I found that voice. It wasn't, it wasn't painful. It was, you know, I was far enough out from it. I mean, I just wanted to tell this story. I felt I needed to. Um, but it wasn't sort of wrenching each day me with a box of tissues by the computer right. by any <laughs> means. I mean, it just sort of came out and it, and it felt good. And why did you feel like you needed to tell the story? Um, you know, for much of, I mean, it kind of is the story of my life in that way. Like if we all have some seminal moments that kind of right. are why who we are who we are, this obviously was mine. Um, but, you know, over time, 
it shifted. Why? And I'd say the biggest sort of propulsive moment of my life in in terms of getting back to this story was starting a family of my own, of course, because even though I, you know, I dealt with the issues for as long as I can remember. I was in therapy. I read a lot. I talked to people, you know, all those things. And I really felt like I had had kind of figured it out and was managing it. And then you have children. Right. <laughs> and of course, your life entirely changes. They're revelatory. And I realized, you know, I uh, the work wasn't finished. And I, you know, it wasn't just sort of understanding it. It was a determination of not wanting to pass along this legacy of deception and secret keeping that had existed in my family, not just in my mother's generation, but in previous ones. Well, your mother now has dementia. Yes. Um, do you think you could have written this book if she were more aware of what you were writing? You said you read bits of it to her and she sort of responds, but... I started the book before she had dementia. Oh, okay. So she knew I was writing she did. it. I talked to her about it. I mean, that's in fact why I had the access to these photos. She actually helped me by... She was a great chronicler of her own life. She had scrapbooks and no photo surprise. albums and so on. And um, yeah, so... You know, I I think she might have been nervous about it. I mean, I I, I you know, but yeah. we had talked about it, and we've always been very close, for better or for worse. I mean, we have a very tight bond. Um, but no, I think she was. I mean, she was absolutely aware that I was writing a book about our relationship and what the <laughs> central right, you know, action was. So you didn't have to wait for her to be sort of out of the picture before you felt like you could do it. This was already happening kind of under your own timeline. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's been the last two years, which is essentially since I handed it in, that her her situation has changed dramatically. Obviously, there was stuff happening along the way, especially in hindsight, I see for how... Mm how many years she's probably been struggling with memory and hiding it a bit, um, all of that stuff. I think there's, you know, probably a great deal of shame associated with it while you recognize it's happening to you. And, you know, so, but no, it's it's really been very recent that it's become Ah. a a life-altering situation for her, two years, I'd say. Well, a question that many listeners asked... um, is um, you change the name of many characters. And some characters, you don't change their name. But in this age of the internet, if you go on the internet and for 10 seconds, you immediately find out everybody's right. name. Mm-hmm. So why did you feel that you needed to change their names? And like, did it help you like write about them as characters? or was... well, there, were, there were two things. I mean, I am so aware that anyone who really wants to do any kind of dive in yeah. two seconds can find out the names of my stepfathers and stepmothers and so on. Yeah. So there were two reasons. I, I care about everyone in this book. Um, and that I wanted... comes through very much. Yes. It's a book it where, does. unlike some books like this, you feel like, you really do have a close, you, you well, know, that was important. compassion yes, for all of them. Do. Yeah, but that comes so through. One of the groups that I was, you know, my stepfathers are both dead. Um, one of my stepmothers is gone. I, I didn't, I wasn't worried so much about, you know, my mother knew I was writing it. I wasn't worried about the very central characters who know the story and understand that I've been working through this situation much of my life. The people that I thought about were, you know, my step-siblings, nieces and nephews mm, of right. the two stepfathers. You know, just are they, is it going to be, you know, they're having to relive something that maybe they do or don't want to relive. And is it harder with the precise name of your parent yes, that in that sense. book? Also, for me, it was it was easier to 
to write. I think thinking of them as, you know, Phil, not Sam, or who yeah, I'm just right. inserting yes. any name. I can see that. Because it gave me a little distance. It it made them slightly character, so I felt like I could tell the truth without necessarily being like, oh, I don't want to say yeah. this about someone yes. or something. So it was yeah. it was helpful for me. And then I remember really in prior to publication sort of talking to my editor and agent and, well, should I revert back? I mean, I knew I was always going to use my mother and father's name. I, well, I always knew I was going to use my mother's name and my own name. Well, and the then fact I, that her name is Malabar yeah, is like, just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Could so be there's, there's no, there's, there's no, <laughs> it's like Gretchen always becomes Heather. That's like my fate. Everybody calls me Heather, if they don't remember my name is Gretchen, but Malabar becomes nothing. No, the only thing yeah. I could think of was calling her Rabalam, which is it backwards. <laughs> oh, that's And then funny. they were like, nah. <laughs> oh. yeah. So, Adrian, this passage, um, it's when you're 14 and when the instigating incident has happened, which is your mother has confided in you that she, that Ben Souther kissed her. And this has led to this huge alteration in your relationship. Mm-hmm. So here's a paragraph, if you'd read it, and then let's talk about that asp- that theme of the book, which for, maybe because Elizabeth and I are so close, that was so poignant to me, um, watching right. the kind of disintegration of your relationship with your brother. Since our parents' divorce a decade earlier, it had been the three of us, Mom, Peter, me. My father was on the sidelines, of course, occupying the every other weekend and alternating holidays real estate. And my stepfather, Charles, was present, too, with his four grown children from his previous marriage, now my step-siblings. But our fundamental family unit since the divorce had always been a triangle, that sturdy shape. Except on this morning, our geometry was changing. Before the end of the day, Peter's side would be cut loose, and once untethered from him, my mother and I would shapeshift into a single straight line, the most direct conduit for her secret. Um, Adrian, that's such a beautiful passage. Can you talk about um, the impacts that this situation had on your relationship with your brother and 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 where it is now? Absolutely. So, in memoir, or I should say, in this book, I focus on a single moment and the ripple effects of that moment. So, the book is about my mother's affair and this um, this night that she told me about it um, and and sort of the replications that rippled out for decades following. You know, we we came from a family where secrets were kept. So while the book makes it seem like this is the only one, <laughs> you know, there were obviously others. Mm. And I think the other important thing to know is that we were both, my brother and I, were both competing for kind of a very small section of parental attention and love. I mean, our, our my mother was damaged in some ways, whether that was by mm. my eldest brother's death. You know, it was just, it was hard to get to her. So my brother and I were always competing a little bit. Mm. So what I'll say is I don't think that's generally an environment for a close right. bond. This definitely added to a complicated relationship he and I have and continue to have. So I'd say we both love and respect one another. Um, we also have a pretty a pretty distant relationship. That said, um, I feel so wonderful about the fact that both he and I have kind of gone on to careers that we've been successful in and have enjoyed. We both 
shockingly, <laughs> are married to really emotionally intelligent people. <laughs> like, really, his wife is wonderful. My husband is wonderful. That might be the biggie. But we've managed to create the space that our children are great friends. So oh, even if we great. haven't oh, wonderful. That's succeeded in our generation, and, you know, there's still time, but, you know, it's not it's not warm and fuzzy now. But our children have a beautiful relationship, and I think we're both in pretty good states by ourselves. That's lovely. Yeah. Coming up, we'll hear questions from our listeners for Adrian about wild game. But first, this break. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. So, Adrian, we had a lot of questions from listeners, and I think these are questions that you probably get often, but I'm dying to hear the answers as well. Um, yeah. What do the other people in this story, like your stepfather, Charles's children, think about the writing and the publication of this book? And what you said earlier indicates you were very, you were very mindful of the fact that they would be affected by it. Yeah, I absolutely was. I mean, they've They've all been super supportive. Um, My stepsister who lives in Alaska happened to be in Seattle when I was having a reading there, and she came and brought a bunch of friends. I mean, no one, just sort of for the record, I didn't out anything. Like, everyone (laughs) knew about this. So it wasn't as if they were learning about this for the first time. I think it was probably surprising the level of which I had been involved in it, which they might not have known. And it, you know, there were probably many more details than that than they'd known. But I think they grew up in a really complicated family situation too. So I, no one has expressed alarm to me. Oh, that's good. Yes, very that's good. a relief. <laughs> Another question from oh. Joyce, and I think everybody wants to know this. You know what's yes. coming. Here it comes, Adrian. <laughs> the necklace. The necklace. Okay, first of all, can we have a picture of the necklace? Will you send me a picture so I can post it? On? Yes, okay. I will send you a picture. Okay, we will have a picture of the necklace. And you will be the first. In the show, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, yay, in the show oh, notes, wow. because I'm like, okay. I have to almost give some backstory because one of the things that was incredible about writing this book was the fact that I had to put myself in my mother's shoes. And in doing so, I developed a tremendous amount of compassion for her, which we talked about earlier, because however complicated my childhood was, it was a walk in the park next to my mother's. So my mother's parents were married, divorced, and married and divorced again. And for those of you who are Uh, children of divorce, as I am, you will be able to relate to this. But no matter how unhappily married your parents are, once they get divorced, you kind of always secretly want them to be back together. I don't know why. It's just the truth. Mm. But my mother actually got to witness that happen. She got to witness her father as a little girl 
proposing to her mother. So she had the dream, like, your parents are going to get back together. The world is going to be whole again. And he did it with this incredible necklace that he he spent much of his life in India. Um, my mother was obviously born there, hence the name Malabar. And he brought this Indian necklace home that just was bedecked with jewels and gorgeous and sparkly. And to my mother, she was probably seven or eight or nine at the time. She witnesses him on bended knee giving this extravagant gift to her mother. Of course, that marriage didn't work out either. Um, (laughs) But but the necklace went on to sort of take on this mythic proportion to my mother. Uh, Just... It represented, you know, love, but sort of security and wealth, because when my father disappeared, they didn't have money. When he was around, they did, or at least there was a shift in, you know, their lifestyle, certainly. And by the time I started hearing about the necklace, which was when, for as long as I can remember as a little girl, she just had this outsized crazy idea of its value. So she would tell me it was, you know, museum quality and it must, it was unappraisable. That was the line I remember most because of course this is a very educated woman who actually, you know, had an art history, you know, had a background in art history. I mean, everything's appraisable. Like we all know this, but Mm. she was convinced that no one could actually appraise this piece. I mean, it was sort of the hope diamond or something. And And, and she did say to you in all seriousness, like, well, if you're, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to a museum where it's at one point in the life of the necklace. And, And the fact is the thing that, you know, she was an only child. She had a hard childhood. So she's one of these people whose possessions kind of competed with love and people or blended into it. So it was very hard for her to let go of it. Unlike, I mean, her mother gave it to her as a college graduation present. Whereas with my mother, she would sort of constantly say, this will be yours someday, maybe if you're good, maybe if you're good. You know, and Mm -hmm. and I would hear these promises. And I mean, the sad truth also is, um, well, Gretchen can tell looking at me, like, I'm not a big jewelry hound. Yeah. Like, I cannot imagine <laughs> ever wearing this necklace. But, of course, I wanted it because it represented my mother's love, and she kept not being able to give it to me. Well, there's sort of there's a couple scenes where I was really re- remembering when Bilbo is trying to give the ring to Frodo, and he's handing it, and, and Gandalf says, you haven't handed him the ring. And he's like, whoa, it's still in my pocket. <laughs> and it's like, he gives it away, and then the demon face flashes out. He's like... He can't let go of the ring. Right. The ring wants to stay. And I thought of your mother being like, I'm going to give it to you, uh, but I'm going to hang on to it. Well, yeah, even when she actually finally, in the end, did give it to me, she was upset when I thought I was taking it with yeah. me out of the <laughs> exactly. apartment. Um, she was like, well, I'm giving it to you, but it doesn't mean you can leave with yeah, it kind right. of thing. Huh. So yeah. the fact is, I do have the necklace in my possession today. The truth is, I do not think I will ever wear it, less because I'm not the jewelry hound and more because it obviously has some negative juju for me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also don't even particularly want to pass it on. I mean, I, I, I think it sort of represents everything that's heartbreaking about my mother. And I don't have a plan for it, but I've I've thought about possibly breaking apart the stones at some point in time and making rings for everyone who's sort of been in this story or, or something to change the energy around the whole and thing. did you ever actually get it appraised? That was the important question. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't gotten it appraised, appraised. I did send a photo of it to the antiquities person at Christie's years ago, um, you know, or five years ago or something. And it is a lovely necklace. It's not remotely what my mother thinks it is. Um, mm-hmm. My children will not be going to college on this necklace. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's a lovely piece. Right. Yeah. Wow. 
But I will someday get it fully appraised. Yeah. 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 It's amazing how like an object can just take on such mm-hmm. meaning. So, yes. Yeah. But it's also, you know, so many people bring up that scene where she ends up wearing it at my wedding yes. rather than yes. I wear it. And they were like, I, why weren't you so angry? And I have to explain that at that time, I really still saw the world through my mother's view. And I was like, I'm I'm gonna about to get married. Like this is only a happy place for me. She is seeing her lover for the first time after sort of this breakup. And it just was sort of like, of course she needs it more than right. I do. I really just fully it was when I wrote it as an adult that I thought, whoa, that really was what a what a move. Because of right. course I could never imagine doing that to my own daughter. Right. Um you know, and, and my own daughter, interestingly, although obviously I wasn't married at 14, but my own daughter is 14, is the exact age I was yes. at this time in my life. And that has been really revelatory for me simply because, you know, how we remember ourselves at 14 and being, yes. you know, inhabiting the yes. world with 14 years old, yeah. 14 year olds. That's two different things. Yes. And my daughter. I have is, a 14 year old as well. Yeah, yeah. They're wonderful and smart and composed and look old, but yeah. they are children. Yes. You know, and yeah. that's the part that she's helped me remember. Yeah. So, Adrian, this leads very well into a question from Mikan, um, who, who clearly had a very strong reaction um, to the book. Um, she listened to the audiobook and she writes, In the acknowledgments, it caught my attention when I heard that the author thanked her parents last and above all. A mention of her father, yes, but her, her, then her first and most abiding love, her mother. I was awestruck. That narcissistic, egotistical, and manipulative mother who barely spent a day not lying to everyone around her and who used her daughter only for her own purpose, emotionally abusing her at every opportunity, creating dependency because she was unable to cope with her own issues. The mother who ruined her daughter's teenage years, lied to her husband for years, her friends and family, drove a wedge between her own children, made her daughter codependent and at the same time felt that she had the right to do all these things because she was particularly adept at playing the victim card. That last tender mention of most abiding love doesn't go to her father's second wife, who behaved more like an actual mother, a friend, her husband, her own daughter for making her a mother and making her see that she wasn't going to be like Malabar, or even to herself for breaking the cycle. Why did Adrian Brodeur choose to write that? Well, someone really had well, yes. a powerful response. <laughs> Whoa. Someone yeah. who probably has a very um, complicated mother, I'm guessing. Right. Yes. I, you know— Because you—, you it's interesting because all this is true, and yet the there is such tenderness and such compassion and such love, which I really think makes this re- memoir very remarkable, and that you are able to see what she did that was wrong, but still love her for her gifts and her strengths right. and understand why she was damaged herself. Two things popped to my mind right away, and perhaps the biggest lesson I learned in um, going out with the book, publishing the book, and talking Yes, about the book, is that I know exactly what I wrote and who these people are and how I feel about them and what the book is. And that has absolutely no bearing <gasps> on the book that you read yes. or Liz reads or oh, someone else reads. Because 
Mm. We all take this. Yes. We all read through our own lens. Well, that's Elizabeth was just and, saying. It's probably her own mother. That, right. Yeah. So I remember being in San Francisco, and you know, I had two events in close order, and one woman introduced me, and she was moderating, and she was just like, "Oh, and Malabar, a feminist before her time, and oh. she walked on water, and blah blah blah." And the next night, it was kind of like <laughs> that evil, horrendous, so and so, and both of I was sort of having whiplash. Um, but I think the reason I acknowledge my mother in that way is not to put her above or bef- in front of anyone else, um, but more, you know, perhaps in relationship to that um, Mary Oliver epigraph I used, which is about a box of darkness and how yes. you can you can see the gifts in that too. Oh, let's read that. Let's okay. read that. Hang on. I'm just opening up the book. Okay. Do you want to? Here, I'll let you read it. Okay. The Uses of Sorrow by Mary Oliver. In my sleep, I dreamed this poem. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. I just, I love that. It, yes. it still mm. gives me chills. Yes, I, I'm like, yes, my, I the hair is chill. raising on my on and, my back of my neck. You know, I truly believe my mother had many of the failings that that reader listed, um, but she is, to use a cliche, sort of better than her worst moments. There was a lot mm. of wonderful in her. Um, you know, she failed in many ways as a mother. I think she did better than her own mother yes. had done for her. And um, I wouldn't have written this book without her. I wouldn't have learned these lessons. I wouldn't have been able to change, um, you know, this legacy for my own family. So I I am also just not angry anymore, and I, I wish I could mm. give you all the reasons why, but I'm not. And I just, uh, I wrote what was true for me. Well, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we will talk more with Adrian Brodeur about Wild Game. So, Adrian, you've mentioned um, that your family sort of had a legacy of secrets and, a, and, and kept a lot of secrets. And this secret obviously dominated so much of your life. Um, and we want to mention to our listeners that you did a great interview with Danny Shapiro on her um, wonderful podcast, Family Secrets, called The Confidant. Yeah, I'll post um, a link in the show notes if people want to go back and listen to it. Danny Shapiro, of course, is the, also the author of Inheritance, which is our first book club choice, and we love her podcast, Family Secrets. So this is like crossover. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about secrets now, both just in you know from having lived through this and having written the book? Right. Well, of course, you know we all react to you know the things we've lived through. So I would say I've done a, a pretty hard pivot and taken a pretty hard line, um, <laughs> kind of, again, secret keeping in my, all, in my own life. Uh, you know, I, I want to keep the boundaries clean with my children. They're my children, not my, my, not my good buddies. Um, but I do feel like the thing, the thing that's most damaging about secrets, and, and I'm not referring to all secrets because we all have little ones that are important to keep for many reasons, but but a big secret like this and, and one that involves um, deception and lying and, you know, all the ongoing things that I went through is it it actually keeps you from being known. Mm. Because if you can't talk about something that's as big in your life as this was in my life, in my, especially my young life, um, 
you know, you, you're not having authentic relationships with your friends or with your teachers or with your mentors or your boyfriend or whoever it is. You're holding something in and it's lonely. I mean, it is just lonely. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a burden. Well, you write about how in your first marriage, which of course your first husband was <laughs> also your step, wait, like, you know, I mean, he, he was the son of Ben Sutter. So yes, the, he was Ben Souther's son, and yeah. so I yes, reader listeners, yeah. I married my mother's lover's son. Yeah, <laughs> we can talk about that in another yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you talk about how you so desperately wanted to tell him, but then you couldn't tell him, right? And then the whole thing, and then when it came out, it was just it was the secret that just stood in your way. It's in, in many, many ways and in kind of like in many different ev- uh, evolutions. Right. right. And even with friendships and other things, it's sort of, I mean, it, they're just roadblocks. They're, they're, how can you have an intimate, true relationship if you don't know my, my biggest life moment? Yes. We will never get beyond, you know, weather and parties and stuff like that. Well, and now that that's, this secret is out for everyone, the whole <laughs> world knows about it, is it? Do you feel differently moving through the world with this sort of raw um, narrative out there? I, I, um, you know, the secret was out for me a long, long time ago, and so that lifted some a huge curtain. You know, that was yeah. that was a wonderful moment. The book coming out has been, you know, it's obviously been sort of terrifying at times and everything else, but. The one thing I wasn't expecting, which has been a complete delight, is that it has helped people. I mean, Mm. I sort of thought it would be this book that, you know, hopefully people would say, oh, this is a very good book, and Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed the reading. I I didn't expect people to write these heartfelt letters. And they haven't had my experience, but a lot of us have had experiences with a boundaryless parent or with, you know, a control issue or with a legacy from their family that they're trying to end. And I feel like it's given people a way to talk about those issues, which, you know, was certainly not anything I had intended or considered or aimed for. It just is this wonderful surprise. So that's been lovely. Uh, Well, so before we let you go, um, we always ask um, guests on the show, if you have a try this at home tip that you would suggest to listeners, some concrete, manageable thing they could do as part of their everyday life to be happier, healthier, more productive or more creative. (laughs) I have so little that's concrete and manageable. Okay, well, but, then do but something I'll give big something. and bold and, and abstract. Yeah, I mean, I think the big, bold, abstract thing is is self-awareness um, and knowing, I mean, that old know thyself. Um, yes. I think knowing yourself and understanding yourself helps so much as you navigate the world. And I think that has been my mission in my own life to try to understand why I react in the way, why uh, I do the things I do. And it just lets oh, you be like more that's, forgiving. That scene where you write about how you got together with your first husband and you were sort of like, doesn't really fit the pattern of all my other relationships, <laughs> does it? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like know what you know too. Because right. I've spent I used to spend a lot of time not knowing what was quite obviously <laughs> in front of me. Right. Right. Well it is I think Don't that's a, all? that's a profound truth and it's the great it's the great challenge of all of our lives is to try to know ourselves. It sounds like it'd be so easy. Like we're just hanging out with ourselves all day long. Like what could be more obvious? <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. We loved the book so much and it was such a pleasure to get to talk oh, to you well, about it. Thanks for including yes. it in your book club and I appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Bye Liz. Adrian. Bye Gretchen. 
We'd still love to hear your impressions and reflections on this terrific memoir, Wild Game. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at Or as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode. This is happiercast.com slash 259 for everything related to this episode. Remember, whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you. And that's it for this episode of Happier. We hope you love this book and being part of the book club discussion. Soon we will announce our next choice. Thank you to Adrienne Brodeur. We so appreciate her joining us in the studio and answering questions from our listeners. Again, her acclaimed memoir is Wild Game. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, our engineer, Bob Tabador, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And if you like this show, please rate and or review the show. It's a big help. People do look at rates and reviews. And so if you take a few minutes to rate and review, it's a big help to us. The resources for this week. Do you love book recommendations? Do you want more book recommendations? <laughs> you can follow me on Goodreads. Check the hashtag Gretchen Rubin Reads for my weekly photo of what I read that week. Or you can read my monthly blog post where I share a quick description or response to each book I read that month. And if you're looking for a simple way to relax or a creative activity to do while you listen to the podcast or listen to a book, I have a coloring book called The Happiness Project Mini Posters. And it has thick pages you can color and pull out to frame or give to a friend. Um, you can download a free sample page if you want at GretchenRubin.com resources. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. So, Elizabeth, you want to know something crazy about Adrian Brodeur? What? So, um, her father is Paul Brodeur, um, who is a, a science writer. And a thoughtful listener emailed me and said, like, oh, do you know that there's this connection between Paul Brodeur and Gary Tobbs, who wrote Why We Get Fat and, you know, who totally changed my life? Yes. So, Gary Tobbs said of, Bro of Brodeur's writing that it was his writing on electromagnetic radiation that was part of what inspired him to switch from writing about bad practices in physics to epidemiology and public health, which is, of course, where I'm obsessed with Gary Tobbs's writing. So, everything that rises must converge. Wow, it all goes back to Gary Tobbs. <laughs> <It does. laughs> From the Onward Project.